Podcast. The Book of Romans has been called the King of the New Testament Epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Good morning again. We're going to get started, but first with a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, as we consider your God-breathed word in front of us, before us, and within us, we pray, Father, for the grace of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding so that we can make sense of it all. And most importantly, Lord, not just to know it, but to live it, to to have the ability to put the truth into practice so that we can benefit by it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you all know what a gotcha moment is, right? It's that unexpected twist, maybe in the conversation where you get caught off guard There's usually an unsettling revelation of some kind that puts somebody in their place and that somebody uses a little cocky, maybe a little smug, pointing fingers and all of that. And suddenly, because of the new insight, they find themselves in the hot seat. They thought they were all that and then gotcha. Now, Romans chapter 2 opens with a classic gotcha Moment. So here's how it got set up. Paul had just laid out a scathing indictment of the guilt of the entire pagan Roman world. If you were not here last week, that's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. Uh, in graphic detail, listing the vices and the detestable practices of first century Rome and all that idolatry. And so saying, although they knew God full well, uh, God, they knew God existed. Uh, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped created things rather than the creator. And God gave them over to do things that they ought not to do, shameful and indecent and immoral things. And that they're under the wrath of God and the judgment of God because they stand condemned because they've sinned against the light that they were given. And so Paul has been making a rather convincing point that we need a savior, that we all need a savior, uh, that we all have sinned, the flagrant godless sinners and the morally inclined sinners. Because many who just heard the list that we studied verse by verse last week would would say there in Rome, well, my word, what a terrible bunch of people. You know, they're certainly not talking about us. 
We're not like that. And it's almost as if after Paul got done with Romans chapter 1, that he imagines some self-righteous man shaking his head, pointing his fingers, and looking down his nose at those nasty, godless, idolatrous sinners, saying, amen, brother, preach it. So Paul says, okay. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Well, the first four verses are out, and yes, indeed, gotcha. And he's far from finished. He's going to go on in this chapter convincing uh, self-righteous, morally inclined, nice people that they need Jesus too. And so sometimes a gotcha moment um, is malicious in its intent, right? They, they're trying to be mean-spirited about somebody and embarrass them in an interview or something like that. This gotcha moment bought, brought to us by the Holy Spirit is the highest degree of compassion and love because if you're not convinced that you need a Savior, you are going to perish. If you're trusting that you're basically a good person, God has to convince you out of that mistaken idea or you will perish. So he has to convince you, he has to use harsh terminology, and he has to get up in our faces and say, hey, you know, your outward goodness isn't going to cut it. In fact, the Old Testament companion text is, all of our goodness is like stinky clothing, filthy rags, compared to God's holy moral Requirements for we have all sinned, even the nice people, even the religious people. And uh, so that's what the sermon's about. You can look at these first four verses, and uh, note takers, there's just, he's going to say, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for pagans, he said in chapter one, and there's no excuse for nice people who do good things because they know right from wrong and do it, do wrong things anyway, whether or not they want to admit that. And so his job here, his mission statement is to help people uh, who live decent lives by the world standards to realize that it's not about living a decent life, that there's nobody who really meets God's holy standards. And then everybody who comes to him, they come to him to be saved. So if you think you're good enough, then you don't need the cross. You don't need a savior. And God's heart uh, is broken about that. So um, the truth is, is that uh, even nice people are, are in the same boat with those who are flagrantly 
sinning. And so that's really a hard pill to swallow. Uh, and so um, that's going to take some convincing. So here we go. Let me paraphrase what you're looking at here, the first couple verses anyway. He says, you may think you can condemn such nasty people, but you're just as bad. And you have no excuse either. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself because you realize that what they're doing is wrong, yet you do these very same things. So when he says you there, the NIV has it emphatic, you, right? But really he, it's saying you, oh man, you know? He's saying, oh man, you who pass judgment. Now, passing judgment, what does that mean? Because it can be confusing because there is um, passing judgment in the right way and in the wrong way. Now, it's often misunderstood, Jesus' words of judge not. Um, people misunderstand that for you don't have the right to tell me I'm wrong. Um, a friend of mine, uh, somebody in the youth group actually told me, she said, I told my girlfriend that she should not be living with her boyfriend. That's not what Christian people do. And she said, don't judge me. Oh, oh no, no, no. Jesus said, you must make right judgments in Matthew chapter 7. So a right judgment would be to discern whether a guy is teaching false doctrine or true doctrine and then make a judgment call. You have to make judgment calls. How do you teach your children right from wrong except making judgments and teaching them to judge what's right or wrong? And the Bible calls us to that. Now, the wrong kind of judgment is here. As Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged is the same wrong meaning for judgment in here in Romans chapter 2. Really, what it comes down to in the wrong sense is a hypocritical condemnation of somebody for uh, the same kinds of behavior that you're prone to do. A rush to judgment without the facts to enjoy to kind of take somebody else apart, uh, wanting to justify yourself uh, at the same time. And Jesus went on to give an example of what he meant. He said, you like to point out the speck of the problem, the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, his issue, without realizing you have a two-by-four hanging out of your eye. So how are you going to see clearly to adjust the little problem in, that your friend is having when you haven't examined yourself and you have a blind spot? to a huge problem of your own. And so he says, why don't you work on getting the telephone pole out of your own head, and then maybe perhaps then you can see with a right self-assessment and, and bring some humility, prayerfulness, love into your correction or help and assistance in somebody else's life. Marriages, oh, marriages, 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 marriages. Uh, <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, sometimes the biggest complainer is the biggest problem. And, and everything you're pointing out about the other person, you do the same kinds of things. But it's okay to be self-lenient when you're doing it, but very harsh and demanding when the other one is doing it. In other words, our sins look terrible on other people, right? And so, 
<laughs> yes, this is the point of the verses before you, right? We just so easy, we go easy on ourselves, right? We have all kinds of euphemisms, you, you, you know. Uh, when they're doing it, they're lying. When we're doing it, we're just slightly exaggerating or <laughs> stretching the truth a bit. When they're, they're, for them, they're gossiping. For us, we're sharing a concern. You know, uh, they, they're stealing, but you know what we are doing? We're borrowing. We just haven't brought it back yet. But we will, which is another lie. <laughs> and so, yeah, it goes on like this. So let's talk about this. For example, uh, the unbelieving moralist who painstakingly pays his taxes, he doesn't know the Lord, and there's nothing wrong with being honest and good, but you just can't use it to justify yourself looking down at others and compare yourself and say, because I'm an honest person in my financial affairs, therefore God should accept me and look at those, you know, and then somebody's in the newspaper for tax evasion. So the person who doesn't know Jesus and is paying his taxes on time can tend to justify himself and look down on the person who got caught. But the Holy Spirit is saying, sir, trust me, I can nail you in a hundred different ways on how you've been dishonest and how you yourself cut corners. I can catch you. You're guilty, just like the other guy. So in other words, religious or morally inclined people share the same sin, but have different sins. Does that make sense? Right. And so he says, you do the same. Now, somebody will say, well, actually, I don't. Well, yes, the Bible says, listen, you do the same sorts of things, i.e., you know that it's wrong, and you do it anyway. That's how you are like the pagan person, you know better. You, you, and, and here's verses three and four. Says, look at you, bingo. You point at behavior and you say, that is wrong. That should be dealt with. That's condemnable behavior. He says, very good, verse three. It comes from God. You know right and wrong. And then you turn around and you do what's wrong. Now you are just proving by your own condemnation of bad behavior that it's wrong and they should know better, but you do the same kinds of things that everything you ever done wrong, you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway, just like them. So in that way, you do the same thing. You, we just have different names for it and Alike. So he just asks there at verse 3, so how do you think you're going to escape? If you don't have Jesus and you haven't reconciled to God and you do exactly what you yourself condemn, but you do it anyway, how are you going to escape? And then he goes on to verse 4 with kind of, this is what he's saying. He's saying, let's just say it's true that you are living a cut above Maybe, and you've got some moral disciplines. Maybe he's speaking to Jews in verse 4, who, you know, 
Uh, they, they attend synagogue and they go to the holidays and all of this stuff and they're pretty decent people. So he says, the credit would go to God, verse 4. The credit would go to, go to God. So even if you are living a cut above and, and comparing yourself to the world, who do you think is responsible for you having been lifted up out of the muck and mire of your own sinful nature? That glory and honor would go to God, not you. He says it's his kindness. And that word in verse 4 means good benevolence. He's had mercy on you to ch- help you change your mind about the things that you hate in other people that you're not currently doing. It was by God's goodness to you that you recognized that and decided to cooperate with some grace and not be that kind of person. And then he says, and it's his tolerance. The word there in in verse 4 means to hold back. In other words, God has hold back and put up with a lot of your shenanigans while you're getting your so-called act together so that you can look down on other people who don't have their act together. And then thirdly, he says, uh, and he's been patient with you. The word there means to suffer a long time. He's been long-suffering. Another rendition is long-fused there. So he says, you've received, you who are moral, granted, you're living a cut above, then, then you're above average in morality. Congratulations. He says, you've received riches from heaven in order to make that claim. And for you to uh, forget that there but the grace of God go I is to show contempt for the grace that has helped you out of the muck and mire and the very person who lent you a hand. So so, so, so even if you are, how'd you get there? So if you're going to start saying, look at him, you know, oh, he's a terrible person, you're showing contempt for God because you were a terrible person too. And without God's grace, you would be a terrible person even though you strive to be a nice guy, shirt off my back kind of guy, there's still a problem inside. And that needs to be paid for. And the gospel is, it has been paid for. Please accept the offer and the brokerage of peace on your behalf. So verses 5 through 11. But because of your stubbornness, now now he's talking about somebody who does not know the Lord, but is living a really good life and maybe with some religious overtones. Maybe they go to uh, church or synagogue, but they don't know Christ. They're rejecting that part. They're going through the motions. Uh, One writer said, this is for all of us, because everybody has a little Pharisee living in their heart. Uh, And so we're going to flush that Pharisee out, okay, and put him to death. Sorry. But because of your stubbornness, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. I got the world uh, by the tail, and your unrepented heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. He quoted there Psalm 62 and verse 12. 
to those who now some wrapping up the two categories of people to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality he gives eternal life but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil there'll be wrath and anger there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew then for the Gentile but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew, then for the Gentile. I'll, Gentile, I'll explain that. Verse 11, for God does not show uh, favoritism. So, note takers, first we had no excuse. There's no excuse. Uh, you may be a nice guy, uh, but you need God. So no excuse for that. And that, now he's saying no exceptions. There's no exceptions. All, he's heading toward the verse for every human being who does evil will be condemned. That's verse 9. This is where he's headed. Whether you're a nice guy, religious guy, or a terrible, flagrant sinner. <laughs> Whether you held a, uh, the pastorate for some church and you don't know Christ, or whether you're a streetwalker. Sin is sin. Unpaid for sin is unpaid for sin, no matter how it's disguised or expressed. And so we have no exception here. Jesus says you have to be born again. And so this theology here is really trying to kind of um, channel us to the place where we're ready to say, uh, Uncle, uh, I need the Lord. So one writer put these harsh words this way after reading them. He says this in incessant barking, this annoying nipping at the heels of the sheep by the sheepdog may not be appreciated by the sheep until they're lying in fields of sweet green clover, walking peacefully beside still quiet waters, instead of finding themselves in the hot waterless sands of Death Valley. And so the harshest, uh, the harshest warnings, the most graphic depictions in the Bible are born out of God's highest compassion and love. Don't perish. You don't have to die. Hell was not created for man, but was created for the devil and his angels. I did not intend one human being to go there, and I have demonstrated that by dying and pouring out the wrath of God on my only son. And if you end up in that terrible place, it won't be because I sent you there. It's because you exempted yourself from the truth that was all around you, the Holy Spirit's voice that resounded throughout your life to convict you of your sin that you might be saved. The word of God, the Christian church, he has made a valiant effort with every human soul. And so let's not look at God as a big meanie by these heads up. The heads up is born out of love to tell us the danger ahead. So let's talk about this paragraph. Hear ye, hear ye, from the all-benevolent king to all the nice people in the world who have snubbed the gospel. You presumed upon God's blessing 
and, and shown contempt for him by enjoying the life that he gave you and all its blessings, marriage, children, careers. One writer said, <laughs> the most, the, 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 what did he say? I wrote it down. Multitudes who don't or won't acknowledge God live some of the most blessed lives on the planet. Uh, Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 5, he says, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends blessing on the just and the unjust alike. So you got health and money and careers and love and all of these good things. And so what does he mean you're storing up wrath? Well, because you're enjoying all these blessings, right? But you hate the one who extended those blessings and gave those blessings to you, right? And so he says in that that's the reason you're storing up. To store up there in the Greek is the same word that Jesus uses to treasure up for ourselves riches in heaven. And instead of treasuring up merit and reward by resisting, look at your verse, by your stubbornness, by Extending the length of your stubborn rebellion, you're storing up further sins and further things that God will hold you accountable for. So in this way of resisting and spending longer waiting, if you die in that state, you have stored up a whole list of things that God will require accountability for. And it's really hard to repent. He says, your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, the word there means to willfully harden. So God will make his truth known. He'll preach the gospel. The conscience will be fired off. And there's a willful decision to ignore the voice and the mercy and the benevolence of God to sidestep that on purpose and to harden one's heart. And he says, if you keep on doing that, uh, God's judgment will be revealed. There's only, uh, that's the only thing waiting for you. Now, I got a random phone call. It's hard to bow the knee. That heart is stubborn. I mean, sometimes we laugh and we say, uh, you know, stubbornness is sort of a kind of a funny kind of vice slash almost virtue. Oh, yeah, she's so stubborn. And we laugh, that kind of thing. But stubbornness with God is something you really don't want. It's a liability. You really don't. You, you, you don't want to win this fight. You want God to win. And the thing about it with God is, is that he'll let you arm wrestle him down. He will. He does not violate our free will. What kind of love would that be? I mean, he's made it abundantly clear all the reasons why we should go with him, right? But he doesn't force in the end. So, I, speaking of how hard it is to not be stubbornly hard-hearted, I got this random phone call the other day, out of state, somebody Googling around for a pastoral help, apparently, looking for a pastor to pick up, and I, I pick up. And so uh, they say, I'm stuck in a rut, 
I know the truth. When I was 17, I was at a youth group and I was the happiest person in the world. And then I wandered away 10 years later. My life is a mess. And I, I can't find my way back. I know my way back. I was raised that way. I know the truth, but I won't do it. Help me. I said, well, I wish I could get inside your brain <laughs> and flip a switch or something, but I can't. It's hard because the human heart is stubborn, I told that person. And our sinful nature <laughs> would rather die than bow its knee to a Lord and be morally accountable, lose my autonomy. Are you kidding me? So we talked like that. Well, uh, that person texted me later and said they were thankful. They let me pray for them. They're not ready all the way, but are, will be attending church this Sunday in their state at a church that I recommended to them. So that's good. But, you know, it, it's hard. I, they kept saying, why won't I do it? Why don't I do it? I don't even have a good reason not to. Right there. We've got a stubborn heart. And sometimes you just have to jump. Amen? Amen. Now, yes. So I think what's important here, he says, if the stubbornness wins out, you will be judged. And let's talk about what he says in the judgment there in verse 6. He calls it righteous judgment. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, anything that God's judgment and wrath is right. Even at the end of the world, the angels cry out while the world is being destroyed through the, in the tribulation. The angels in the book of Revelation cry out, just right and true are thy judgments, O God. And then give a whole bunch of reasons why the earth deserved the judgment and wrath of God. It's right and true and just. And he says, you want to know how just God's judgment will be? He quotes Psalm 62 and verse 12 there in your verse 6. He says, he will render to each person exactly what they have coming. (laughs) So you can have coming to you mercy because you followed the plan. Or you could have coming the self-pay option. And that would involve his wrath. God's judgment has two Options, the mercy that Christ paid and the self-pay option. So he's going to talk first about verse 7, and he's going to talk about, whoops, the mercy. So he says, it, it's the mercy first, right? To those who persist in doing good, right, okay. So uh, notice with me about the two groups It's not about behavior. It's not about deeds. It's about the bent of your life, the focus of what you're seeking. And in this first case, he says, to those who are seeking glory, honor, and immortality, they're seeking, their life is focused, and and of course, faith is implied. You can't seek the glory and honor of God and eternal things without faith. And so faith is the key 
right? So they persist there in this glory and honor and seeking of eternal, not temporal things. And so by doing that, they get eternal life. And when it says they're going to receive eternal life, it means the full unspeakable, full on blessing of being a child of God and what that entails. And you could preach a hundred sermons on just that alone. And then he says, those who are willfully put themselves outside of God's mercy, the other group here, verse nine or verse eight, they have a different perspective. They have a different seeking. They have a different response to the truth. They don't embrace the truth like group A. They reject the truth and they follow a different path and they have a different destiny. Right, And so those who are willfully putting themselves outside of God's merciful salvation, they can expect an exact retribution uh, for their exact crimes. And verse 8 lists them. Number one, they've lived for themselves instead of God. No human being was ever designed to live for themselves without God. It is the highest form of embezzlement to take what doesn't belong to you because you didn't birth yourself, you didn't decide to be here, you don't even sustain your next breath. It's all been given you by God. And to use it for your own good pleasures and your own self-gratification is the highest form of embezzlement. So the first charge is they lived, the word there in verse eight means self-absorbed. Secondly, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. A truth that God says in Romans chapter one, I made perfectly clear to them. That's God's claim. And thirdly, they followed evil instead of Christ. Now, you know, when you follow somebody, you end up where that person is going, right? I know that was really profound. Think about that. But when you follow Christ, you end up in paradise. When you follow this world's rejection of Christ and who stepped in in his place was the evil one. When you follow the evil one, you end up where the evil one is headed. And so he describes that as wrath and anger, verse 9. And he says trouble and distress. The word there in verse 9 for distress means to be cramped into a tight space and extremely afflicted by that tightness. And so he says, every human who does evil, that would include everyone on the planet, is destined for that. Except, of course, I'll need the picture of the the Lord. He says, you want to talk about wrath of God? Sent fully on his sinless son, sinless because he was born of a human being. So he counts as a representation of one of us and conceived of the Holy Spirit. He is the God man with no sins of his own. So he can pay and qualify as a sacrifice for our sins. So God says, I will pour out my wrath that every human being deserves because they have all sinned, I will pour out my wrath on my son. That whoever simply believes in him, since nobody is good and nobody can measure up, if you just simply trust 
and yield your life over to the God who made you and died in your place, then you shall not be put to shame. You shall not experience the wrath, the anger, the distress, and the trouble that's coming on anyone who has committed evil and hasn't been paid for. God is just. He says, (laughs) either I'm going to pay or you're going to pay. So he says, well, please choose life. Let me pay. He's the guy who reaches in every time and and says, let me pay. Let me pay for this. Let me pay. And the stubborn, unrepented, deceived sinner by his own rejection of the truth keeps saying, I'll pay. I'll pay. I don't need your help. And to think that you're, you're being nice and you're paying your taxes and your little goodness can beat this, <laughs> that's showing contempt for the agony of the cross and the payment that God has made on your behalf. You can go back to those verses. We're almost finished up with them. So he says, now the group that opts for the merciful uh, plan that Jesus paid, they get glory, honor, and peace. So that's pretty cool. And notice he says, they preserve in doing good. So my Bible students here, you know when, when we preserve in doing good, he means those who preserve in doing the right thing, the good thing of trusting Christ in faith. That's the only good that a sinner can do is to trust Christ. And then we do good because we have trusted Christ and have obtained eternal life. And that goodness counts for something for sure. So glory there for those who have been reconciled means a spectacular blessing beyond eternal minds is waiting. Honor means the highest privilege to sit at God's table with the Lord. He says, you're going to get that honor But Jesus stands up and says, let me introduce you. Let me tell you something about this child of mine right here. He's going to do things like that. He's going to let you reign and rule with him. So you get this glory, this honor. And and then he says he swaps out immortality for peace. This inner sense that's permanent and eternal of well-being. You'll never be afraid. You'll never be anxious. Never be worried. He says, that's what's coming. Eternal peace, glory, and honor. For what? Did you have to climb Mount Everest? Did you have to turn over a new leaf? Did you have to work your fingers to the bone? Did you have to crawl on your knees on broken glass? Did you have to cry for 10 hours? Did you have to say a thousand Hail Marys and a hundred Our Fathers? For Nothing, everything for nothing. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. Done. Today, this day, you're going to be in paradise. What? He was just hurling insults. He's an insurrectionist. That means he's a murderer. He's lived and wasted his entire life. And in the last seconds... All he says is, whoops, I think we got the wrong guy here. The sun stopped shining and the way that he's speaking and forgiving those who are killing him. Whoa, when you come back in your kingdom, he says, I changed my mind. Would you just simply remember me? And he says, done. 
It's all you have to do. And the horror of perishing is this. A split second of no effort at all on your part except to yield and to say, yes, I believe, yes, save me. That's all it would have taken to avert an eternal disaster of the most tragic kind. So he says, and so, you know, therefore, he says, God shows no favoritism. So you might say, I'm related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what they thought. The Jewish people thought, we don't need to be saved. We are Jews. We're related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he has to point out that that's not going to fly. And so he moves on. And we finish up. And it looks, this one gets confusing, but it's really not. And it takes, it's just like a few minute thing. So, so probably the Jews are thinking, but I'm Jewish. I grew up, I'm related to Bible heroes. We've got the Bible, we've got the temple. I go to temple, I sing the Psalms. I memorize the scriptures, I got all of that. The only thing is I don't really have a relationship with that God. So it's sort of like the kid who grows up in the church kind of thing, or the, the person who lives in a Christian country and is a church attender. They just don't feel like, hey, I don't get it. So he says, okay, listen, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. The law means the Bible. And all who sin under knowing the Bible, having the Bible, will be judged by the scripture. For it is not those who hear the scripture who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the scriptures who will be declared right with him. So now time for a parenthetical comment. Indeed, when Gentiles, a Gentile is just your average guy, not a Jewish guy, just your average guy out there in the world. It means nations, just some guy who's not a Jew. So indeed, when some guy is not a Jew... (laughs) Who, who does not have the Bible or know anything about the Bible, do by nature the things that the Bible requires, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the scriptures. Since they show that the requirements of the scriptures, of what, of what God desires for us, are written on their hearts, their consciences bear witness and their thoughts now accusing or defending them. This is going to take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So that's as far as we get uh, this morning and a quick wrap up now. The first point was no excuse. Everybody knows. Verses 1 through 4. No takers. No exceptions. Verses 5 through 11. And now we finish up with no more secrets because the day will reveal all the truth. The truth will come out. Verses 12 through 16. Uh, Okay, so listen. This is not as hard as it looks. There are two classes of people that he's dealing with. Those who have the Bible and knowledge truth and those who don't. All right, those are the two groups. Well, what about them? Now, Both of the groups have this kind of pitfall, this kind of vulnerability, this liability that that the Holy Spirit really wants to clear up because it's, it's lethal for both groups. So on the first hand, there are Jewish people like 
um, people raised in Christian homes. They grow up knowing the Bible, attending services and all of that, going through the motions, and, they, and their lethal uh, misunderstanding is by that they are saved. And then you have the other group, the non-religious guy without the Bible, who's a Gentile, a regular guy, without the knowledge of the word of God. And uh, he might say, well, I have an excuse uh, God can't hold me accountable. I don't have a Bible. I don't know the Bible. I was raised in a, a non-Christian country, a non-Christian family. My parents were atheists. I've never been to church. I just do my best and just leave it at that. I've got an excuse. Do you see? So the Jews' excuse is, I'm a Jew and I'm a good person. The, the person who doesn't have the Bible says, well, I didn't know. So he has to convince both of them, oh, no, you're, you've got warped thinking. So actually, verse 12 is the argument in a nutshell. Here's what he's saying in verse 12. Those who sin or reject God without the Bible, they perish because they sin against their conscience. And those who sin and reject God with the Bible... Full knowledge of God, like the Jews, will be judged by the Bible they have. So there's no favoritism, right? And so here's, here's what he's saying. Verses 14 and 15, let me sum it up and we'll be done. Regular non-religious guy, right? He says, with no connection to the Bible, he's clueless about spiritual things, or so he says, <laughs> When he does right and avoids evil by his instinct, he shows he knows what the Bible teaches about right and wrong, even though he's an atheist, all right? And maybe no Bible in his hand, but he has the Bible in his heart because God put it there in every human being. Now, he doesn't require the Bible because the basic right and wrong is written on his heart. And he says he feels good when he does the right thing. His thoughts defend him. So when he remains faithful to his wife, when he tells the truth instead of lying, his conscience says, way to go. That's the right thing to do. And then he says he feels convicted and bad. And he feels guilt when he does the wrong thing. When the conscience says, what? You're going to steal? You're going to take something that doesn't belong to you? Are you crazy? You're going to cheat on that woman? She's born your children and put up with you for 10 years? And you're going to sin like that? I don't think so. Says the conscience of the atheist who's never seen a Bible, who lives in Pakistan. The Bible's claim is that he knows enough and he's proving that he has knowledge of right and wrong. So he ends the whole thing at verse 16. He says, you know what? On the day when Christ comes, all of this will be cleared 
up. There'll be no more excuses from religious people and no more excuses from non-religious people. There'll just be no more need for lawyers and judges and prosecutorial teams. There'll be no need for lie detectors and nobody pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. There'll be no more he he said, she said. There'll be no more You know, I was raised this way, and this is my problem, and this is why I did it. There'll be none of that. He says, because people will stand before God. He is judge and jury, and he knows everything. He's omniscient. He was everywhere at once. So there'll be no arguing, no debating, no manipulating, and no more deceiving. He says, and here's the good news. The good news, he says, according to my gospel that he loves so much, he says, my good news, God's good news that I've embraced as my own, he says, the good news is this. God is going to lay the truth bare and reveal the secrets of men's hearts. That's the good news. What? (laughs) Well, depending on which group you belong to, I mean, if you belong to the group whose secrets... Jesus was stripped so that we could be covered. The word atonement means to cover. So if your sins are and secrets are covered, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall not be put to shame. Now that's not to say he won't deal with our secrets as believers. He will evaluate us for reward or or forfeit of reward. So even then, the secrets will be made known. We will not be ashamed, but we will be dealt with accordingly. (laughs) But for them who have no payment, he's going to say payment is due. Payment is due. And what are they going to say? He says, they're going to say, no, there's none of that because they're standing before the omniscient all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God who will show them a history of all the times they had opportunities. And, and this is the worst part. Every single time they, it registered in their mind and heart that it was true and they should do it. That will be laid out. You knew. Here's where you knew. Here's what you said. Here are your exact words of your own conscience. And yet you you find yourself here. Good news for us, bad news for them. And then he, he cries out one thing. He says, this day, I lay before you life and death. That's the spirit of it. Choose life. Choose love. Choose mercy. And, and here's how I want to close. Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11. He says, As surely as I live, the Lord swearing an oath using his own name, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, rather that they would turn from their wicked ways and live. That's the heart of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your long-suffering, your kindness, your tolerance. (laughs) Thank you that you 
bore the wrath of God so that we would never have to deal with that kind of judgment. Thank you for judging our sins on the cross. And help us, and especially anybody here who's still dragging their feet and shutting your voice out, and I would imagine this was quite an unenjoyable hour, having to dodge yet again for an hour the truth that could set them free. But I do pray, God, that if anybody's here struggling like that, that they'd have a miraculous change of heart, that you would help them to believe and not perish. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.